Father in heaven, we come boldly to your throne of grace through Jesus Christ. We thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you that we have your word written down, preserved for us here today. Thank you for the words of Isaiah here as we look to this city uh, where the branch is beautiful and glorious. God, I pray that we'll have open hearts and open minds to your word that is preached today. All of us together, may we glorify you in this. May Christ be honored in this time. In your name, amen. You can have a seat. Many of you know that the mic is not good. <laughs> Many of you know that I was born in the Philippines. If that wasn't obvious, ta-da. But uh, when I was nine, we moved to New Zealand, beautiful place. And then when I was 13, we moved to Canada, cold place. Uh, but as a kid, the biggest, some of the biggest differences that I noticed in those three places were temperature and accents. Okay, so temperature, we went from hot in the Philippines, and then New Zealand was a happy medium, and Saskatchewan, freezing. Uh, but accents, you know, I went from a Filipino accent, you know, and uh, I heard a Kiwi accent, and I had to imitate it, you know, I had to talk like them. Uh, then I went to a pure Canadian accent, eh? You know? <laughs> but one common denominator that I found in those three places as a kid is that we always, always lived in a city. In other words, you could call me a city kid, right? And when you grow up as a city kid, you develop ideas about what a city should be like, right? Or what a city should look like. And for me, a city should have had big buildings everywhere, right? Big malls like West Edmonton or Mall of America kind of malls. Big highways, at least five to six lanes, preferably, right? Subways underground, and I don't mean the ones we eat in. But to me, that, that, that's what an ideal city is. That, that's what I, I lived in Toronto-sized cities in uh, the Philippines and New Zealand. But when we moved to Canada, to the city of Prince Albert, <laughs> I was like looking around. Is it, you call this a city just because you have over 5,000 people and some McDonald's? Like... What a miserable city. God, take me back to the real city. And lo and behold, I ended up in Nippon, Saskatchewan. <laughs> but that's how I thought about a city, according to my standards. Maybe you have your own. But as you'll find in our text here today, uh, Isaiah chapters 2, 3, and 4. Isaiah talks about a city. And he doesn't talk about it according to his Standards. He talks about it according to God's standards. Because he prophesies about God's city. Okay, here's a big idea. Isaiah 2, 3, and 4. This is talking about God's city. So note takers, you can write that down. Uh, but he actually describes this city in chapter 1. Look with me in your Bibles to chapter 1, verse 21. 
And we're going to go through a lot of uh, passages here in Isaiah. So just follow with me in your Bibles. Verse 21 of chapter 1. How the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice, righteousness, lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. We talked about this last week, right? When you boil the silver and everything that comes up is dross, but in this case, all of it is dross. Nothing is pure about this city. Your best wine mixed with water. Yet the hope is that one day, this faithless city will become a faithful city once again. Look at verses 24 to 26. Therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. Verse 25, I will turn my hand against you. His people who have become his enemies. And I will smelt away your dross as with lime. Remove all your alloy. Everything about you will be pure once again. And afterwards, you shall be called the city of righteousness. The faithful city. This is really the outline of chapters 2 to 4. Because Isaiah expands on this image of God's city. Which he specifically refers to as Zion in verse 27 there. Of chapter 1. And we could say that this is kind of a preview of the book of Isaiah in general, right? Last week we talked about how Isaiah chapters 1 to 5 is like the preface of the book of Isaiah. So let's not skip the preface here. But um, this is our outline here today. In verses 1 to 5 of chapter 2, we're going to talk about our first major point that is the ideal city. Okay, this is talking about God's city, and Isaiah will describe the ideal city in verses 1 to 5. And then our second major point comes from verse 6 all the way to chapter 4 when Isaiah describes the actual city. That's our second major point. So we go from the ideal city to the actual city. And then third, um, last but not least, Isaiah describes the holy city in chapter 4, which we just read here to close. But this is our roadmap here today. So Uh, You can follow along. But let's start at verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. And Isaiah talks about the ideal city. The word that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, it shall come to pass in the latter days. I want to pause there for a second. Uh, We talked about this in 2 Timothy as well. This phrase, the latter days or the last days. Might have seen this all over scripture. But in Isaiah's day, this was likely understood to be futuristic, in the future. right? However, uh, we know in the New Testament, right? this phrase, last days, has present day implications based on how the author of Hebrews describes it. Hebrews chapter 1, you might be familiar with this. Long ago... Verse 1 of Hebrews 1. At many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, like Isaiah. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So here we find that the last days started or was in place at the time of Jesus Christ, at the coming of Christ. And it continues through 
to our present day today. And it will continue until the last day, literally, right? When Christ returns. So as Isaiah prophesies about the future here, and they would have understood it as that, let's keep in mind that these prophecies have likely had some historical fulfillment in Jesus' day, which we'll talk about later. But nonetheless, Isaiah prophesies, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills. Here's a direct reference to the Temple Mount in Zion and Jerusalem, as they would have understood that back then. They would have thought, okay, that temple, that mount, that's where God's presence was. But what do we know about Mount Zion in thinking about these couple verses here? It shall be lifted up above the hills, established as the highest of the mountains. Compared to the high mountains stated in Scripture, if you look at Psalm 68, you'll hear about the mountain of Bashan and Mount Hermon in Psalm 133. High mountains up north, but down south, Mount Zion, is, it's a little foothill, really. That's what it is. Yet back then, mountains and high places, right, were, they were commonly associated with the presence of gods, the presence of deities, But Isaiah's picture here in chapter 2 is one that exalts this little mountain, the mountain of the house of the Lord, the tiny hill where God's presence was as the highest of them all. Maybe not in height, but in honor, as we'll see here. The ideal city, as Isaiah puts it, exalts a hill where Yahweh dwells and reigns as the most high God and as the one true God. And because it's exalted in such honor, Isaiah notes that this city on a hill will exert this magnetic pull on all the nations. Look at the verse after it, verse 3. And all the nations shall flow to it, and many peoples shall come and say, Come. Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Throughout the Old Testament, we see pagan nations outside of Jerusalem. Right? They typically worship their gods in the high places. Right? That sounds familiar throughout Scripture, in, especially in the book of Samuel, Chronicles, Kings. You, you'll see that all over. And more often than not, the people of Israel, who were supposed to bring the nations to their knees in worship of Yahweh, they were actually more the ones who bowed the knee to pagan gods instead but here, in the ideal city that Isaiah describes, he, he paints this picture of a river, right? The nations shall flow to the mountain. And this is a picture of a river flowing not generally downhill. But look at how it says it. The nations shall flow to it, shall be lifted up above the hills. There's this river flowing uphill towards this tiny little city on a mount, on a hill, where the God of Jacob is. 
a river of nations flowing uphill to Jerusalem. Because God is the one doing the work. Right? That's the first thing we notice here. God is doing the work by drawing people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to himself. And this was God's intention with the people of Israel from the very beginning, right? In Exodus 19, some of you might remember, God tells them, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed my, obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Israel, as the people of God, was the vehicle through which God intended to draw people, the nations, to himself. God chose Israel among all peoples to be a holy nation of priests who would then draw other nations to Yahweh in the same that he brought people, the people of Israel, to himself. And here in Isaiah 2, this river of nations that has this magnetic flow uphill towards the city where God is teaching his people his ways and that leads to them walking in his paths. As a result of that, out of Zion, that's the next phrase there, out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And not only will God be the law giver here or the teacher but he will also be the judge over all nations. Look at verse 4. He shall judge between the nations. He shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. The picture of God's rule here is that of total peace. Instead of sharpening their swords and spears for war, which they would have done a lot back then, they will sharpen their plowshares and pruning knives, you could say, for sowing seeds and for harvest. If you want some more details on this, 1 Samuel 13 gives you a picture of this. But today, it's as if we exchange guns for hoses and tanks for tractors. Okay, that's how much I'll go into agriculture. I'm, again, I'm a city kid, so. But wouldn't this be a picture that we would love today, especially what's going on with Ukraine? That's how they would have felt back then. Tiny Zion, Jerusalem, has been invaded a number of times. And this picture that Isaiah gives is that of total peace. The ideal city, as Isaiah describes it, is one that knows no war or weapons. But it knows only God, peace, and farming. Mennonites rejoice, right? (laughs) Amen. But this is what the ideal Jerusalem, the ideal city should look like. A tiny city on a hill that will be seen and heard of and known by the world that this river of nations will flow uphill 
Because that's the city where God dwells in. This, as Isaiah described it, is the ideal city. Shortly after this picture of this ideal city, Isaiah has a little exhortation in verse 5. He says, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Our God has taught us his ways, Isaiah says, so let us walk in his paths, in the light of the Lord, that is to shine bright for the nations, so that nations will come flowing uphill to hear God's teaching and a life that leads to walking. But the question is here, why does he give the people of God here such an obvious Exhortation, right? He has just given them this picture and he said, Come, let us walk in this light as I've described. We find the answer in verse 6 onwards when Isaiah turns to God in distress as he describes our second major point here in the text today the actual city. Here's the actual city in verse 6. For you have rejected your people, O God, the house of Jacob, because they're full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines, and they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold. There is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there's no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols, and they bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. God has rejected his people because the actual city that Isaiah describes here is the exact opposite of what we just read about the ideal city. Look at verse 6. Instead of pagan nations being drawn to Zion... God's city is now conformed to the world, the nations around them. Instead of the law going forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, God's city is filled with worldly treasures, right? There's silver and gold. That's what comes out of the city. Instead of promoting peace, they're preparing for war with their horses and chariots. Instead of bowing down to God as judge of all nations, they bow down to the idols of the nations. It's the exact opposite. It's the big observation we want to see here. The actual city is the exact opposite of the ideal. But if we think about it here today, what what bigger barrier can hold us back from desiring God and, and the heavenly city that... As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, we only see in a mirror dimly. What bigger barrier can hold us back from that than having idols and earthly treasures that we can physically and clearly see with our eyes today? That's the problem here that Isaiah points out. This is the actual city, far from the ideal that God has intended. But there's another big idea here in the repetition of the words in verses 6 to 8. You'll notice the words filled with is repeated. 
And you'll notice the words, no end, repeated. Not only do they desire these things listed here, but God's people are priding themselves in being filled with and having endless treasures, armies, idols, which is exactly what the foreign nations around them prided themselves in. And this explains why Isaiah says what he says in verse 9. So, because of this, man is humbled, each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. What a striking request from a prophet who preaches a message of grace and one of hope. Yet it's not so striking when we actually take into the account the accusations in verses 6 to 8 about the actual city, about the house of Jacob, who are filled with pride, who are filled with darkness. And there is no end to it. And they're the same group of people that Isaiah talks about in verses 10 until the end of the chapter. Here he says, Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord. And at first I said, what's he trying to say here? But if you look down uh, to verses 19 and 21, you'll see this idea repeated. Verse 19, and people shall enter the caves of the rocks in the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Verse 21, It ends the same way. When he rises to terrify the earth, this indicates judgment. God's presence is that of judgment. And people will hide to the rocks and the cliffs, hiding from the presence of the Lord, from the splendor of his majesty, because he is going to terrify the earth. But when when will this happen? Look back to verses 11 onwards. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low. The lofty pride of man shall be humbled. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day, verse 12, against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up. And it shall be brought low. You'll notice in verses 13 and 16, it's a list of all that man has lifted up. Against all the cedars of Lebanon, the oaks of Bashan, the mountains, the hills, the high tower, every fortified wall, the ships of Tarshish and the beautiful craft. The haughtiness of man shall be humbled. The lofty pride of man shall be brought low and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Also in that day, verse 18, the idols shall utterly pass away when mankind, 20, verse 20, in that day mankind will cast away their idols of silver and gold which they made for themselves to worship. Why? Because of verses 11, 19, and 21. Sorry, 10, 19, and 21. When they will see the terror of the Lord and the splendor of His majesty when He rises to terrify the earth in that day. And then the chapter closes with a second exhortation from Isaiah that 
if we look at the first exhortation and verse 5, is actually closely linked together. Because, and it actually summarizes this whole passage here that we've just read and went through. Because he says, O house of Jacob, verse 5, come let us walk in the light of the Lord. Verse 22, and stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. For of what account is he? This is the actual city in their current state, as Isaiah describes. They're filled with darkness. There's no, pro- no end to their pride. Therefore, in that day will come judgment when God rises to terrify the earth. So the exhortation here for the people of God is to stop regarding man. Stop putting your trust in mankind. And in chapter 3, Isaiah explains why God's people need to stop regarding man and trusting in human pride. Because in that day, right, there's a theme here, in that day, not only will God humble their human pride, as we've seen, but he will also take away, that's the language in verse 3, he will take away their human pride. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3. For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply. And what's the support? Support of bread, support of water. And who's the one that supplies that? The mighty man, soldier, judge, prophet, diviner, elder, the captain, 50, man of rank. The Lord is taking away from his city the pride of men. Okay, and we're not talking about general mankind here now. Now he moves to literal males, as in the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, who were men. And specifically in their leadership, God will take away. Look at verse 6. Actually, no, let's look at verse 4. And I will make boys their princess. Infants shall rule over them. This is a direct insult leaders back then. The people will oppress one another. The youth will be insolent to the elder. Verse 6, for a man will take hold of his brother in the house of his father because they won't have leaders and he'll say to him, hey, you have a cloak, which is a sign of leadership, the appearance of leadership. Back then, hey, you have a cloak. You shall be a leader in this heap of ruins. Jerusalem shall be under your rule. Verse 7, he says, in that day he will speak out saying, I will not be a healer. You shall not make me leader of the people. The Lord is taken away from his city, the pride of men and men in leadership of them, which they boasted their prides in, according to Isaiah here. If you look at verses 16 to 24, so verses 1 to 15, God is taken away pride of men. Verses 16 to 24, the Lord will take away the pride of women. Okay, we see that in verse 18. In that day, the Lord will take away what? The finery of anklets, headbands, crescents. And you'll see here, the list goes on. It's appearances of women. How verse 16, the daughters of Zion are explained is that they walk with outstretched necks. Right? They glance wantonly, arrogantly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet, right? because their appearance is what they boast in. 
And in the last few verses of chapter 3, Isaiah actually sums this all up. Verses 25 and 26 is almost the summary of this chapter. Judah, Jerusalem, your men shall fall by the sword and your mighty men in battle. And her gates shall lament and mourn. Empty, she shall sit on the ground. Because women were totally dependent on men for income and social status back in the day. God's saying here that I will take away your mighty men in battle and they will die. And chapter 4 verse 1 ends this passage here and says, And seven women shall take hold of one man in that day. Again, we're talking about in that day, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Just let us call, be called by your name. Just bring us into your household. Take away our reproach. This is what will happen in that day. Far from the ideal city in verses 1 to 5. This is the actual city, as Isaiah describes it. Verse 8 summarizes this whole idea. For Jerusalem has stumbled, Judah has fallen, because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying His glorious presence. And just over a hundred years later, in 586 B.C., the people of Judah saw this prophecy being fulfilled right in front of their own eyes as Babylon comes and takes over to destroy Jerusalem and make it into a heap of ruins, as verse 6 says. This is the actual city. Yet we see the triumph of grace in these last verses of chapter 4 in contrast to God's judgment in that day on the actual city Isaiah ends by declaring God's grace when he prophesies about what the actual city will look like after judgment but this is what the actual city will look like in that day it will be here's a third major point here today the holy city Verse 2 of chapter 4. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. Here, the branch of the Lord is actually explained by Isaiah a couple chapters down in Isaiah 11, uh, verse 1. You can flip there if you'd like, but he says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, In a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. The image of God's city here in that day, right? This is to come after judgment. The image of God's city here is that of a fruitless tree with broken branches everywhere. And the message here is that in that day, That fruitless tree with broken branches, suddenly a branch will come forth. He shall be beautiful and glorious. And he'll come from the root of Jesse, the line of David. He shall be the pride and honor of Israel. Instead of the beauty and glory that the women of Judah in chapter 3 were aspiring to, Instead of the men of Judah and their elders and princes in chapter 3, verses 1 to 15, 
This branch will be the glorious prince of peace. Verse 3, And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. This is why our third point here today I call the holy city. Right? The survivors in chapter 1, verse 9. Again, we're looking throughout Isaiah here. Uh, last week we talked about this. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, so the survivors that the Lord of hosts leaves in that day through judgment and the people whom God brings to himself in the time after that, these are the ones who will dwell in the holy city. These are the ones who are recorded for life in Jerusalem. Paul expands on this image of this tree in Romans 11 when he talks about this olive tree as the one people of God where these natural branches, right, the Jews were there. Some of them were broken off, but God says some of them might be grafted back in. But the other image is that of wild branches being grafted in to this one olive tree which makes up the one people of God in all time. In age. This is the picture here. But when will this happen? Verse 4. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment. And if we look at this language of judgment, if you look at uh, verses 14 of chapter 3, The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. It is you, he says, the elders and princes, who have devoured the vineyard, my people Israel. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. You have crushed my people by grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. But in that day, chapter 4 says, the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion, Right in verses 16 to 24 there of chapter 3, as well as the bloodstains of Jerusalem from the midst of its leaders in the spirit of judgment, in the spirit of burning. But if we look at this image, we see that this has actually been fulfilled. Just not yet in its fullness, but it has been. Because it talks about the branch that's, gonna come and he shall be beautiful and glorious. He shall be the pride and honor of his people. Well, who is this branch? This branch is the Messiah that Isaiah prophesies about. The one to come and his name is Jesus Christ. And he has washed away the people's sins, his people's sins, and cleansed their blood stains at the cross where his blood was shed for you and I, as we have remembered here today. And one day, one day, in that day, God will make his people totally holy once he has completely washed away their filth and bloodstains. And this imagery of burning here, the spirit of burning, indicates the process of being purified to perfection. One day we will see the full reality of the purified people of God. Just like the angel in Revelation 21 showed John when he says, Come, I will show you the bride. 
the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me who? The holy city, Jerusalem. Coming down out of heaven from God. The purified people of God, the bride, the wife of the Lamb, is the holy city, Jerusalem. Okay, and there may be a literal cubed city on a hill, but the point is clear here that the people of God, the bride of Christ, purified fully, is the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. That's the vision that we see here. God will make his people holy once he has completely washed away their filth and bloodstains. Then, verse 5, and only then, the Lord will create over the whole side of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. And this word canopy here is, this is used, the same word is used in Psalm 19, verse 5, and it talks about a marriage chamber. It alludes to the, the, the words, blessed is the one who is invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Okay, lots of uh, allusions to Revelation here, but nonetheless, it says, there will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and shelter from the storm and rain. Much like God being present with his people Israel in the wilderness during the Exodus, as you might have picked up here in the language, the picture here is one of God being present over the whole city that he has made holy. And listen to John's closing words in Revelation 21, same passage where he sees the holy city, the bride of the Lamb. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk. The kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And as chapter 4 of Isaiah says, everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, the people who remain, will be called holy. This is the holy city. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious with his holy city. So there's a lot that we covered here. Uh, Isaiah chapters 2, 3, and 4. Again, the big idea, right, is talking about God's city. We've seen how Isaiah talks about the ideal city in verses 1 to 5. And how this tiny city on a hill, right, will be exalted in honor. Not so much in height, but in honor that the river of nations will flow towards it uphill. So that they would be taught God's ways and that they would walk in God's paths. As a result, the world would be filled with peace and justice and righteousness. However, we've seen that Isaiah, right, chapters 2, verses 6, all the way to chapter 4, describes the actual city. And we see that it's the exact opposite of the ideal. 
So the exhortation in verse 5, chapter 2, he says, O house of Jacob, come let us walk in the light of the Lord. Because you're filled with darkness. There's no end to your pride. Therefore, God will judge you in that day. And Isaiah exhorts them, the end of chapter 2, stop regarding man, but walk in the light of the Lord. Because God will take away the pride of your men and your women, chapter 3, and chapter 4 ends, as we talked about here, with the hope in that day, the branch who will wash away his people's sins, who will purify them completely and dwell with them forever. That will be given to the Holy City. So you might be thinking here today, isn't this all about Jerusalem and its future? Where are we today in this prophecy about God's city? If you look back at chapter 2, keep in mind what we talked about earlier. This prophecy happens in the latter days, in the last days, which again would have had present implications in Jesus' day since the last day as Hebrews 1-2 says, right? These last days he has spoken to us by his son. It had present day implications at Christ's coming. So with the image here of Isaiah chapter 2 verses 1-5 to in mind, the ideal city. Think about how Jesus, during his ministry on earth, went up on a hill, specifically a mount in Jerusalem, where crowds gathered to hear him teaching and preaching about the kingdom of God. You can find this labeled Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, as we looked at last year. But in the same sermon, Jesus, who went up on that hill and started teaching God's ways, he He said in John chapter 9, I am the light of the world. And that same Jesus now tells his disciples on the mount and all those who are listening, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Back then, cities on a hill would have been seen from afar, right? They would have been a dime and a dozen. But you could spot a city on a hill. Why? Because... It's well lit. It was up high, full of lights. And guess what Jesus' hearers would have heard or thought of when they heard those words, a city on a hill, Jerusalem, the Temple Mount. Jesus says to his disciples, though, in Matthew 5, 14, this is where I'm reading from, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. You are the light of the world, which is the city on a hill, you are the city. On a hill, you and I, together, as the people of God and the church of Jesus Christ, are the city on a hill. This is why I titled the sermon City on a Hill. And the city on a hill cannot be hidden because light shines brightest in the darkness. So as the light of the world, the city on a hill, Jesus tells us, his disciples, to Verse 16 of chapter 5 in Matthew. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do you remember Isaiah's exhortation for the house of Jacob in chapter 2 verse 5? 
House of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. So that a river of nations would flow uphill towards us. And they would say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, the city on a hill. That God may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall come forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. How is this fulfilled? Jesus tells his disciples before he ascended back up to heaven, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. So go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. In the name of the Father, baptizing them and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Do you see the connection? Jesus is fulfilling Isaiah chapters 2 4 today through the city on a hill, you and I. The people of God who participate in God's mission to the world. This is why we support and send missionaries into the world as a church. This is why, as you heard earlier, the young adults are going to Ontario this summer to learn about God's heart for the nations. Kids, this is why we sang the Great Commission for four weeks straight. <laughs> Leading up to this. Thanks, Angela, for writing that song. This is why we're going to sing, May the peoples praise you after this. You have called us out of darkest night into your marvelous light. So that peoples might praise you, O oh God, as we shine the light. This is why we have the word of the Lord preached here every Sunday from the pulpit. This is why we have Bible study groups and small groups at EBC for both young and old of all ages. We encourage discipleship, mentorships, right? For people to teach people God's ways so that they might walk in His paths. And in doing so, the word comes from Jerusalem and out of Zion goes forth God's law, God's word. As we make disciple-making disciples. How do we apply Isaiah chapters 2 to 4? Well, here's one way. Get plugged into the life of the church because that's what we live and breathe, the mission that Jesus gave us. You will be my witnesses from Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So go make disciples of all nations so that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation might flow uphill towards us and worship God with us until that day. As Isaiah 4 describes, when God unites all things in Christ in heaven and on earth, and he dwells with his holy city, that is, the purified people of God. So whether you're at school, if you're a student, whether you're at work as an employee or an employer, whether you're at home as a mom, if you're retired, whether you're in a grocery store or running errands around town full of strangers. One of the best conversations I had was with my massage therapist. I did not enjoy the massage because we kept talking. Because she was like, hey, where are you from? Well, I'm from, I'm from the town here. I'm from Emmanuel Apple Church. Oh, okay. And it started from there. It's it, it just, this is the light. You're just the light, right? You just shine. And you remember that you're the city on a hill that cannot be hidden. So let your light shine wherever you go so that others may see 
that light, that they may see your good works that God has prepared beforehand for us to walk in, and that they may praise our Father in heaven. If you're hearing this for the first time today, I encourage you, come. Learn about this light. Learn about the light as we spread this light as the body of Jesus Christ. But if you have committed your life to Jesus Christ as part of his body, hear this exhortation from Isaiah as we close here. And he talks to the house of Jacob. The word of God exhorts us today. Emmanuel Baptist Church, the city on a hill, come and let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have chosen us as your people to be priests in this world that draw other nations, other peoples to you, that you have called us out of darkness into your light so that we might proclaim your light, your excellency, who has called us. Once we were not a people, but now we are your people, God. We thank you for these words in Isaiah today. Thank you that we can walk in the light. Help us to walk in the light in such a way that people would just draw uphill as you draw them to yourself. As we shine the light today, as we sing and fellowship with one another, as we go throughout the week with the body of Christ, the city on a hill, shining our light to the community of Nippuin, Saskatchewan and Canada and throughout the world. Thank you for those who are going out to the nations, to the unreached, that we can send and support them and here be missionaries, be lights in the world here in northeast Saskatchewan. Lord, I pray that we would walk in the light as you have called us to. Send us out of here as Emmanuel Baptist Church is a city on a hill that seeks to glorify God as we shine a light to the world. May this be true this week and the rest of our lives. In your name, amen.